the LSAT doesn't care what you think about these passages. They don't want to know what you think. And it's really hard to let go of that idea because if you're studying for the exam, you've probably gone to college at this point. You've been taking higher level English type classes and you're, you're used to like interpreting text and offering your viewpoint. They don't want to know. And actually you have to detach from your own views in order to like fully engage with the author's view. Hello, and welcome to the 7 Sage Podcast. I'm Joe Y. Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with 7 Sager Me versus LSAT, who scored a 180 on her August 2021 exam. Not only did she get a 180, she did this in her third trimester while working a full-time job. If you're wondering how that's possible, well, that's exactly what we talk about. So without further ado, please enjoy. I have 7 Sager Me versus LSAT. Uh, welcome. Thank you, JY. So excited to be here. Can you give us a little bit of background? Yes. So I am in my late 20s. I've been working for over five years since uh, graduating college. And I took my first diagnostic about three years ago at this point, scored in the 140s, and then just scored a 180 in the August 2021 exam. Congratulations. Thank you. From what I've gathered, this is not just any 180. There were some special circumstances. Yes. I was also seven months pregnant when I took the exam. Um, so I, the entire time I was taking it, my daughter was kicking me a lot. <laughs> so that was also happening. I had a large belly. I had a pregnancy ball with me where I was bouncing, you know, during the break just to relax. And yeah, so it was, it was definitely a unique testing experience. Julia told me that you were working full time and you already had a toddler. Yes. These things are also <laughs> true. <laughs> yes. I, don't, I, don't, I almost don't even believe you. <laughs> I know. I, I have a little imposter syndrome about it, too. I'm, I'm like, did that actually happen? Yes, it did. <laughs> that was me. Yes. That's insane. That's insane. Yeah. Like, how did you have the how did you have the time to even study? Yeah, it was really crazy. And I also wanted to share that I ran a marathon at the beginning of my pregnancy. And then I oh ran a half marathon. Yeah, I ran a half marathon a couple weeks before the test. So when I was like about six months pregnant. So anyway, I am a I may be a unique person. I don't know if that's unique, but yeah, it was a unique set of circumstances at least. Yeah. Wow. Please tell us your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for studying, finding the time to study was, you know, a constant challenge. And what ended up working for me was recognizing that my brain works best early in the mornings before parental demands, before work demands begin, all of that. So I would get up at four and Every morning, I would drink my coffee, read a book that I found inspiring, work out, and then do 15 minutes of mindfulness. And then I would start my studying at around like 4.45 usually. Wow. Um, I wasn't someone that I thought would ever be capable of doing that. But over time, I just built those habits because I just realized like that's the only way I'm going to get my studying in is if I wake up before the world is awake. Oh, so you didn't always wake up at 4 a.m. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, just 
no. just wanted to be clear about that. <laughs> no, I'm not this like freak that <laughs> has always <laughs> arisen at 4 a.m. No, absolutely okay. not. I was a regular college kid who slept in, you know, I, <laughs> um, and even as a professional, I wasn't even someone that, you know, a younger professional, I, I didn't, I didn't do that. But when you have a small child who wakes up at the crack of dawn, you need to wake up earlier if you want to study for the LSAT. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're like up before the rest of your family's up. And that gives you some almost like this magical window of a few hours to just your time, do what you need to do. It really is this magical period of the day where it's very quiet. My brain is clear. It's just lovely. And I would program the coffee the night before too, so that it was ready for me. And when you're pregnant, you can't drink. (laughs) So (laughs) not that I would recommend maybe in moderation while you're studying just to keep things, you know, even, but I really enjoyed that cup of coffee in the morning to kind of stimulate my brain and get it going. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, when did you realize that you had to change your routine to wake up, you know, at 4 a.m.? Yeah, I think it was a little bit before I started Seven Sage. So I had tried a bunch of different test prep programs, but I want to say I started that around maybe November of 2020. So I've been coming up on a year of doing this at this point because it's October. Right. You just got your 180 in the August yes. administration. Yes. So November to August is about like, what, nine months? Yeah, nine months. Yes. Okay. So I think already this is something that I know I cannot do consistently. I've tried to wake up really early. And I think that like right now I'm able to push my morning wake up time to like 6.30 most days okay. during the weekday. That's about as early as I can do it. What I've heard from so many high scoring students is there's always something that they're doing that most people don't do. You know, I feel like and that has to be true, because if you're just doing what everybody else is doing, then I'm not sure what would account for the difference, what would account for your stellar performance. So I think just even even as it sounds so inconsequential, oh, just getting up early. But I I think if you try to do it, you'll find, number one, that is really, really hard to do consistently. Really hard. And it does matter because you do have the time. Okay, so you said you tried a bunch of other materials before Seven Sage. And actually, remind us, how long was your entire LSAT journey? I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but it was in total, if you don't count breaks Mm -hmm. in my studying, it was three years. Oh, yeah. No, that's not. That's, I mean, yeah. (laughs) You've heard other students on this podcast before. I mean, this three years is probably average, I would say, for people that I talk to here. Okay. I I was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> Pretty much the whole time. But <laughs> yep. Took three years. And I, I had, you know, as I shared, I had a baby, had a number of job changes during that time, life events and such, of course, like anyone in their 20s studying, I'm sure. So there were significant periods of gaps for me, for sure. But in total, from the first diagnostic to the 180, it was three years. Yeah. Wow. Just about. Okay, so then let's get back to your last eight or nine months of serious studying. Yes. Can you kind of just walk us through? So wake up early, like uh, do you have a cup of coffee, meditate, you hit the books. How much time would you have to study in the morning? Yeah, so something else I learned was that I work best studying for the LSAT if I do 45-minute what I call work sprints. So I do very focused periods of 45 minutes of studying. 
And I would be able to do two or three of those before my son would wake up. And then since I, you know, kept it to 45 minutes, I would try to fit in a couple more of those sessions in between, like maybe during a lull during the workday. Right. And I had a little, something that kept me going was I would print out monthly calendars and I had, and it it sounds very, this sounds very cheesy, but it really worked for me. I had little heart stickers that I would put on my calendar every time I did a 45 minute work sprint. And it was just really cool to see. So whenever I thought like, oh, I'm just not doing enough. I'm not getting enough time in. I'd saw, you know, every heart represents a really great quality study session. And that is counting towards every one of those hearts counts towards my score, towards this effort so that I wasn't falling into thinking I wasn't doing enough or that I hadn't made progress or it was just helpful reminders at different points. I totally agree. It's an objective external accounting of what you've done. Exactly. And they're cute and they're pink and they're gold <laughs> or whatever. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. two to three, 45 minute sessions. And then you're off to your quote unquote normal day where you have to go to work. Were you working from home or did you have to go to the office? So during this period that we're talking about, I was working from home predominantly. So fortunately, my commute was 30 seconds. <laughs> That really helped with ensuring that I had like quality time with my son in the morning, my husband, and had time to like settle into the day, you know, that this this next phase of the day, the work day. Yeah. Yeah. I've said for, I don't know, like 10 years now in, in that lesson on like how to study right, that presumably if you're studying for the LSAT, this is the most important thing because you're contemplating a career change. And yes. so you should do your most important thing first thing in the morning. So I am so glad to hear you actually operationalizing that bit from the lesson. I think typically the psychology is that like you don't really want to study for the LSAT because it's hard and you just generally don't want to do these. So you kind of like put it off. But then after a whole day of work, then you really don't want to study for the LSAT because you're tired and you just want to (laughs) relax. Yeah. So So true. I think giving up that expectation of myself that I was going to study after four o'clock, like just letting go of that was 4 p.m. 4 p.m. Necessary clarification, yeah. Yeah, very necessary here. Uh, Once I let go of that, that was very helpful to be like, I don't, my brain doesn't function after, you know, I've I've done a whole day of work. Now there's dinner, there's bedtime, getting my son to bed. There's, you know, there's a million other things to do now. Yeah. Why add the LSAT to that? Yeah. You know, then I'm not spending time with my family. I'm not finishing up my work assignments or whatever. So totally. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I feel, I feel the same. I mean, you know, I think for me, the hardest part of my day is curriculum development work. And that's the thing Mm. that I, you know, at some point I just realized that I need to do this first thing in the morning. Otherwise I'm just not doing it because it's the hardest thing in comparison to everything else I'm doing. So it's the thing that I least want to do. So I have to get it done in the morning when I'm the freshest, because that's the part of my day where I have the highest probability of doing it at all. Yeah. 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 That's your deep work that you're doing. That has the greatest impact on what you're developing, what you're continuing to developing. It's so easy to just get caught up in like other, you know, I don't want to say it's busy work, but it's certainly not curriculum development work is work that I I have to do. All the other stuff is, you know, sort of more like management and whatever. 
But anyway, I want to ask you more about your specific LSAS study tactics. Let's let's talk about like, you know, logical reasoning or, or LG or RC, like which sections gave you trouble and, you know, how, how you overcame those, those difficulties. Definitely. I would love to talk about each section. <laughs> should we start? Should we honor the core curriculum and start with LR? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So LR, I was terrible at, I was actually terrible at everything. So we'll just, we'll just, we'll just, <laughs> we'll just put that out there. <laughs> Your initial diagnostic is, uh, in the one forty forty six, you said? Yes. It wasn't just like, oh, you did great on LR and RC and you bombed LG. It was like pretty bad on everything. It was disastrous across the board, I'd say, okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, let's start with LR then. Yeah. So I think something that I didn't understand before starting Seven Sage was that LR is really the foundation of the exam and learning the underlying principles of logic and reasoning are essential to understanding the entire test. And also, I think I had the misconception that the LSAT is a theoretical exam, and it's really very technical. And every section is equally precise and requires equal levels of reasoning ability. So kind of looking at the test as something that was technical helped me approach LR with a more, it, it sort of took out the mystery of the whole section and it helped me concretize my approach for each question type. So just like having that different, completely different mindset. And that really came from prior to, I think maybe, I think it was around the time that I started Seven Sage. I also read this book called Make It Stick, which talked about different ways of learning and different study strategies. And they had outlined different approaches for, let's say, like a more theoretical exam versus a technical exam. And reading through that helped me see that, okay, the LSAT is very technical. There are rules of logic that underline this test that I need to master. And I hadn't mastered those. So yeah, I love the way that the curriculum is designed where you need to learn those basics before you go into logic games and reading comprehension. For sure. For sure. I mean, like, I think those other sections just kind of show up. They're more specific. Like for logic games, for example, it's all about conditional reasoning, deductive right. logic, which shows up in LR, but only in the must be true questions, in the sufficient assumption questions. In a subset of LR, right. you get all those formal logic right? You have to know the, the conditional logic stuff. But yeah, if you don't see how technical this test is, then it's kind of a mystery why certain answers are right. And, and then other times other answers should be right. But it's, it cuts the other way too. If you do realize that, oh, there's actually this thing called causation logic, and that's the organizing principle behind a bunch of these strengthening, weakening, evaluate flaw questions. And then like all of these answers just start to look the same and it starts to feel quite repetitive. Definitely. So what I did when I was doing the curriculum was I would just follow each, just go step by step. And when I started doing the problem sets for a particular question type, I first did them untimed in order to ensure that I was completely accurate. So I shot for, and I look back on my notes so that I was, you know, I'm sharing accurate information here, but I would get over 90%, like 93 to 100% accuracy on the questions before I start putting myself under time conditions. And that was just really important for me because, and we'll probably talk about this 
later in our conversation, but I would get very anxious when I was under time conditions. And that was not conducive to really understanding and understanding the step-by-step approach I needed to take for each question type. So I first would make sure I was accurate. And then once I was accurate, I would put myself under time conditions doing three questions at a time in that process, teasing out my inefficiencies. So in doing three questions, I'd, and, and I'm like, okay, how, how, is, how is my timing at this point? I'd look at that and try to identify, okay, where am I wasting time here? Where is my process inefficient? And then I would identify it. And then in the next three, work on that. Sort of repeated that process until I was able to do three questions in a within that reasonable time frame of, of being able to finish a section in, in time. So and that that is what I did for each question type. So so by the end of the LR, you know, I was getting things right. And if I wasn't getting things right, I wasn't it seems so simple, right? Like this is not complicated, but but then I, I'd be able to identify like where I was making missteps and then practice those missteps in a very focused manner. Yeah. So yeah. Does that make sense? Like am I explaining that well? Totally. I I think, and I also want to just highlight, I don't want the import of what you just said to kind of blow past people because, you know, like you said, it sounds simple, right? But I I think that simplicity is, is kind of obscuring something that is not a psychological default. Yes. Because, I mean, I've just seen it with so many students. I, I, and I also, I still remember it in, my, in myself when, when I was studying for this. It's, it's the impatience. It's the impatience. It sounds so logical. And I say this in the curriculum. You have to first make sure you can answer the questions correctly without the timing element. Right. Under just any, any amount of time. You know, because that, that's the pure test of whether you get the logic or can parse the dense grammar. Why confound the issue here with another difficult element of timing? First, make sure you yes. understand the logic and the grammar. Once you can do that, then let's see how, if you can speed up that process of analysis. That's the clean way to do it. But, you know, like I said, it's not the psychological default because, again, it comes back to the fact that you don't really want to study for this test. And it's a hard test. <laughs> and you want to just get it done as, much, as quickly as you can. You want to short circuit this step, you, you, uh, this process. You, you want to just, oh, you know, I can, I can time. I can, I, I'll be fine. I'll, you know, whatever. And then, yeah, surprise, it doesn't work out so well. Or, or maybe it does. You know, if it does, great. You shouldn't be too surprised to, to find that it, it doesn't. So, you know, do it by the book. Do it right, step by step. And it's a simple process. <laughs> and, it, and it produces results. Yes, definitely. And I think there are so many things that can take us out of that process. Like you were saying, impatience, just wanting to get it done. And I think what helped me too was to remain in the process was this book I read called The Practicing Mind Mm -hmm. uh, by Thomas Stirner, which gave this incredible example of the Olympic Japanese archery team Mm -hmm. as compared to the Americans. (laughs) And he compared their process. And so when the Americans would, you know, shoot a bullseye, you know, let's say get that answer correct on the LSAT, for example, to draw an analogy here, they would cheer. Yay. You know, Mm -hmm. I I did it, Mm -hmm. you know, got the arrow right where it was supposed to be. The Japanese team, they wouldn't cheer. They would because there are factors involved in getting the arrow to the bullseye that are out of one's control. Right. There's wind, someone startling you, like saying something. 
could throw you off. There's so many things that could throw you off. So you, they were very focused on the process. And so they would just focus on their form. And so that was like became a motto for me as I was going through each question was focus on form, focus on my form, focus on my form, stay in the process. Because once we start focusing on that outcome, the bullseye, getting the question right, it can make us give us like a false confidence or also be incredibly depressing if we're struggling, you know? So anyway, I wanted to highlight that as well. And it's a very short book. Yeah. You completely nailed it. I mean, that is giving you a false sense of confidence and be incredibly depressing. Those are exactly the two things you want to avoid. And those are exactly the two things that are going to happen if you focus on the outcome, which is why it's not a good idea to focus on the outcome. Focus on the process. Focus on your form. Focus on just the things that you can control. And then don't worry about the outcome. The outcome is what it is. It's just a byproduct of your process, of your form. Because that's better because, number one, you can actually control your process and form. Because by definition, yes. we're, we're, we're defining process and form to be the things under your control. You figure out what it is that you want to do and just execute those steps. So number one is under con- your control. And number two, it's better psychology. Because you're only going to evaluate yourself based on the criteria of, have I done the things that I said I was going to do? Have I deviated from the process that I've laid out? Or have I followed the process? You're not going to be like, oh, I got this question right. Yay. Or I got this question wrong. Be sad. Yeah, that, that's not helpful. That's not healthy. No, it's, it's not it's, healthy. It's not helpful for your improving your score either. So much of this is, again, not, not surprising, but like just a lot of high scores say similar things from different perspectives. We're kind of like, you know, everyone's kind of like converging on this idea. So I I feel like there's probably something there. Definitely. Yeah. I can tell from the way you're talking about this, there's so much of the process of studying for the test wasn't even so much about the test, but rather kind of learning about your own psychology, how you respond to certain things, how you can manage your own stress, your anxiety, manage your mood levels so that you can actually just keep going. Yes. That, I think, tends to be underemphasized. I mean, certainly it is underemphasized in the curriculum, but I think it is one of the things that we end up talking a lot about when you're talking to anybody who's studying for the test, or certainly that's been the experience for me talking to high-scoring students. Definitely. I'm so glad we're talking about these things because this whole kind of shift in an approach to how I study and how I work, how I, and it really affects this process versus outcome is being able to develop that skill of focusing on the process really of anything and be remaining detached from the outcome. It's this superpower that um, it really is. And it, it applies to every area of life. It applies to parenting when you have a toddler who you know has big emotions they're and they don't have the words yet yeah remaining attentive to the process of being present to that person while also realizing like his mood is a little bit out of my control he's his own person right that's like a superpower and it applies to and it'll will i think for everyone that you've talked to is who has highlighted this like that will serve them really well i think and I'm excited about applying it in law school, remaining focused on learning and study strategies instead of focusing on like, oh, that was just at, on the bad day or like the difficult test or the difficult professor, like those things that are out of our control. Right. So with your son, if I'm understanding correctly, I think you're saying it is just not good for you if you were to attach your mood to whether your son was happy or not, because that's more or less out of your control. Right. But rather to just kind of focus, like I, th- I think you said, being attentive to how, how he's doing. That's like the, the thing that you can focus on, right? 
Definitely. And that is from another book. Oh, really? <laughs> that I read. <laughs> I, uh, from, it's called Growing Up Brave by Donna Pincus, I want to say. I want to say it's the analog because it really is this how you, it sort of had some outlines for engaging with your child in a way that will allow them to feel secure in your presence mm-hmm. and play. And, and it's called like child directed interaction. It helps children with anxiety reduce their anxiety levels because like as a parent, you can fall into wanting to control your child or not, you know, not asserting yourself when you need to. It basically this child directed interaction period of time can allow you to play together in a way that like helps him feel secure. It is proven to help reduce anxiety levels in young children. My son is very young. He's he's two, you know, so there's nothing like I'm not worried about anything like but I wanted to build these habits with him because I saw how like beneficial a similar approach was to my LSAT studying. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just yeah, I, to share that as well. I, I feel like, you know, you, you mentioned that you ran a marathon. I'm, I'm Now I'm thinking like there must be, that must also be analogous because, you know, the outcome of running a marathon is initially unattainable for, you know, 99.999 whatever percent of the population, right? There's no way you're going to be able to run a marathon. It's like for that task, it's like you have to focus on the process because there's nothing else you can do. You can't focus on the outcome. Right. And for me, the marathon was definitely analogous. I saw it as an opportunity to strengthen my bonds with my husband and my brother. And we've done this a couple, we ran a marathon together a couple of years ago and we wanted to do it again. I was pregnant, but we were like, you know what, why not? Let's just do it. Wow. And it was really, really fun. And that the thing is we, we focused on just going through it together. And that's what made it really enjoyable was that struggling through through that together and challenging ourselves together. But yeah. And then we did it. Then we did a half marathon at the beach. So, okay. So let's, let's get back to the LSAT itself. Yes. So that was LR. You want to talk about LG next? Yeah, definitely. So LG, I already had a pretty solid foundation in logic games before I started mm-hmm. the curriculum. Basically, I needed to focus more on strategy for the whole section itself. I think that was my biggest area of growth on that particular section. So a couple things. Foolproofing is the best thing that's ever happened to the LSAT. (laughs) (laughs) So I swear by it. It is so, so helpful. And your videos are fantastic. And and honestly, I found logic games to be a lot of fun. I really focused on foolproofing, really challenging games. Like I went through the curriculum, I developed strategies for the major question types based on the curriculum. And then I really focused on very challenging games. That's really what I did because I already had a foundation in games. It wasn't like the first time I'd looked at them. I'd already taken the test twice. I'd done different programs. And I think just keeping the diagrams very simple and also having that step by step, like the same thing as LR, having a step by step approach. Yeah, process. To, right. Yes. Yeah just having those steps that I follow and I wrote it out. And so that if I wasn't finishing a section in time or finishing a game in time, looking at not only my strategy for the game setup itself, but also the strategy for 
like, did I read the question in the way that I should have? Or did I get distracted by this other thing by just jumping to the questions? Like, did I really follow my process here? And I focused on those and and then just keeping my diagrams very simple and keeping them together in a one place, like on the page, allowed me to then work through the questions like as efficiently as possible. So focusing on first questions that introduced more information and then focusing on the like must be true, must be false questions where they didn't introduce more information. I learned this from a tutor I worked with, but he was saying like, start with the specific questions. He called it local versus global Mm, or specific questions. And then the more like general questions. So this is very basic stuff, but yeah, really helpful. Super helpful. And earlier you said kind of thinking through where you made a mistake, if you got something wrong, that is part of refining your process. It's almost like hypothesis testing. You have a process, which is your hypothesis of how you can do better on this part of the LSAT. And your hypothesis will never be perfect, but you can have it approximate perfection more and more and more through a process of refining. So to do that, though, you do have to make sure you're actually following your process to begin with and then finding the weaknesses in your process. Whenever you make a mistake on the logic games, there's always a reason. There's like a, you know, something happened that caused you to make that mistake. Part of the difficulty is identifying what that causal mechanism was. It could be that you didn't read this word. But then you have to ask, well, wait, why didn't I read the not? Why? Is it because of how you read? Is is there something, you know, do you need to be more tactile in how you read? So once you figure that out, once you identify these causes, then you can incorporate it into your process. One of the more abstract ones that I found out kind of later on, this is like well past after, you know, I took the LSAT years into my teaching. I realized that sometimes I would fail to make an inference because I wouldn't translate negative rules into positive rules. And that was a pretty big realization for me because I, 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 once I made that realization, I, real, I, I saw how often test writers give you negative rules. They tell you, oh, N can't be in three and four. And then I'll just leave it like that. Like, okay, N can be in three and four. Or like L and M can't be together in a grouping game or whatever, right? But see, like in a sequencing game, it's never about where things can't be really. Ultimately, you need to figure out where things have to go or where they can go. And then in grouping games, ultimately, you have to figure out where things go. Who can they be with? So then I would add that to my process as a step. Whenever they talk about a negative rule, try to think in what's the implication there for the positive version of that. Where can N go then or who can L and whatever be with? So I would add that step into, into the process. And that's sort of a little illustration of refining, improving your process and just make sure you, you follow the next time. Right. And it's what's really makes this whole process very enjoyable is that there's always room for growth. I mean, even after I, I took the August exam and was waiting those very long weeks to get the score back, I continued to refine my process. I continued to test. I continued to study because I still felt like there was room for growth and things I wanted to, like, I could learn. And like you said, you had already been teaching for many years when you (laughs) discovered this little, this this different approach. So yeah, yeah, it it is really, it's an exciting process. Yeah. I, I genuinely enjoy the logic games. Another point to back up what you just said is doing the uh, questions out of order. That's something I only started doing 
I, mean, I, I guess I can't say recently anymore, but certainly I didn't teach that from the beginning of Seven Sage. It's only in like, I don't know, the 70s or 80s in those games that I started switching up the order where I would explicitly tell students you have to do the questions that give you additional premises first. Because on average, those questions tend to be easier. The reason is because whenever they give you an additional premise, the effect of that additional premise is that it excludes a whole bunch of possible worlds. So then you're limited to a smaller set of possible worlds, which on average means that it's easier for you to figure out the inference. Not always true. Sometimes those like, quote unquote, global questions right. are pretty straightforward. They just, one of the big inferences, you know, is, is what they're going for. So sometimes, you know, it is easier to do those. But again, it's a process. Process is, you don't know ahead of time. So the process is, do the additional premise questions first. That's a way of taking ownership of the game. So the game, yes. you're not feeling yes. like led by the yes. game. Yeah. You're in control oh, of the yeah. game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's such a psychological test. Like sometimes I just like you can look at the questions, the patterns, the way that they phrase things or the, the, the way that they organize things. And then you're like, oh, man, they're really m trying to mess with you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> Like sometimes in logical reason, back to logical reasoning, I, I, I would just like kind of look at the answers and I realize, oh, with answer choice B, they were seeding this idea. They were like priming us with answer choice B, hoping that we would take that information and put it into C. B might be the, the assumption that C needs in order for C to do its job. But obviously you have to consider each answer choices independently, right? You can't like, oh, B and C together are the right answer. But, you know, you, you see them do that sometimes. You're just like, wow, this really is a psychological test. Yes. And it really exploits like our tendency to make stupid mistakes yes. too. Yes. Where especially I think the positive versus negative rules is like a great example. And then also the accept questions where, oh my gosh, the number of times I would let that. Just twist you around, get, right? You get. Oh yeah, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so I had this motto for accept questions where I would say, when I see accept, don't be inept. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my gosh just you have to have fun with it sometimes it's yes. so so miserable but yeah. um yeah yeah those those little tricks are really really helpful yeah for sure should we talk about rc then yes let's talk about rc okay so people tend to think it's the hardest section to improve i don't know if you found that to be true or yeah just what was your experience i'm really excited to share about reading comprehension because after I got the 180 and posted on the forum, I shared some of my RC strategies with your audience. And then people were messaging me some follow-up questions. And then it was so gratifying to see people going from minus six to minus one or two mm -hmm. just by employing these couple little things that I shared. So the way that I ended up approaching reading comprehension was that Okay, yes, it's a really hard section, but I think we need to get it out of our minds that it's any less precise than logical reasoning or logic games. Let's own it. To I totally <laughs> agree. I totally agree. And it's, I think, actually the, and I'm, of course, I haven't attended law school yet, but based on what I understand about the profession of law, <laughs> um, it is most applicable to what we're going to end up doing if we pursue this route, because we are going to need to read information and find evidence for claims yeah. in long pieces of text. Yeah. So I thought this was, it was a helpful like little reframe thinking of reading comprehension as preparing me to be a lawyer. And so it helped me take like own it a little more because, you know, the passages are not frankly, just like not very interesting. Most of the time they're very convoluted. 
a lot of like logic language thrown in there that seems unnecessary because it is, it's just, but that's what we're going to be doing as lawyers. So (laughs) it's good practice. And yes, I would look at, and the way I would read a passage was looking at each paragraph as a LR stimulus. That's how I thought about it. And if it was a really long paragraph, I'd break it up in two because why the heck not? Yes. <laughs> like anything to make those big paragraphs a little more manageable. And then as I read through identifying the main point, noticing the any like logic language, looking for subtle clues of the author's opinion and kind of just going one LR stimulus at a time. Because, you know, by this point, I think for most students, you don't find those LR stimuluses like as or stimuli as overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the passage that way, you're like, okay, I can handle five of those or four. So, and then at the end, I would always answer the main point question first. And I actually really struggled with main point questions. And something that helped was asking myself, First, of course, like, okay, what was the main point of this passage? And then you have sort of like this idea in your mind of what that is. And then you look at the answers and I'd usually get down to two and then really struggle between the two. And I really appreciated your video explanations of the later passages because you had a very like systematic approach to identifying the differences between the two answer choices. And something that helped me was just taking a step back and saying, and phrasing those two answer choices that remained this way. Is this, is blank, the answer choice, the main point of this passage? And just kind of like shifting my focus from look, like comparing it to my preface, but like just asking myself, is this the main point of this passage? It would start making it more clear. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when you formulate in your own words what the main point is, that formulation itself might deviate from the true main point. Mm-hmm. And so if you compare, let's say you're down to A and B, if you compare A to your formulation and B to your formulation, then you're kind of using a touchstone that might not be totally accurate. Whereas if you kind of just ask, is A the main point? Maybe you're forcing yourself to go back to, or rather not go back, but like sort of think back to the passage. Like does A actually capture the main point of the passage and kind of just, you know, dropping that whatever formulation you had in, in your own words already. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And then also considering that the LSAT doesn't care what you think about these passages. They don't want to know what you think. Right. And it's really hard to let go of that idea because we, if you're studying for the exam, you've probably gone to college at this point. Right. You've been taking higher level English type classes and you're, you're used to like interpreting text and offering your viewpoint. They don't want to know. Yeah. And actually you have to get it, you have to get it out of your head in order to understand, you have to detach from your own views in order to like fully engage with the author's view and what the passage is saying. So that was like really helpful too, to recognize that. Oh, totally, totally, totally. I just want to really emphasize this point that you just said, because it's so important. The section is called reading comprehension. It's not called reading interpretation, (laughs) right? Right. That's a huge difference, (laughs) right? Comprehension means, do you understand? Like interpretation is fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not the task that we're asked to do. The task is comprehension. So you really just have to understand what it is that you're reading. It's easy to kind of, I don't know, I think it's easy to get mixed up because 
inevitably, there is a little bit of interpret. You can't completely get away from interpretation, even in the comprehension space. But just know that you're like the constraints are tight around what interpretation is allowed. It's not the kind of interpretation in your college level English class. There's almost like what constraints? There are no constraints <laughs> versus here. No, it's really, really tight. Right. What I experienced and what I've heard from other seven sagers is that if you actually have some previous knowledge of the topic that is being addressed, you're actually maybe a little more liable to make a mistake because it's so challenging to separate what you already know from what you're seeing in the text. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that definitely cuts both both ways, though, because if you have no idea what they're talking about, you don't even have a <laughs> mental framework to organize the information. Or another way it could cut against you is you can't even imagine what they're saying. These are just words that have no shape to any mental model you have of the world, which is you know not, not great either. Definitely. And then another key thing was recognizing that the correct answer choice will always have some level of support in the text. Yeah. There's no way around it. Stop kidding ourselves. <laughs> this is very precise. And then the and the other answer choices, I think the trickiest one I think I think you would agree with this too is that the way that the LSAT can trick us is some answer choices will have some like have part of it will be supported yeah. and the other part is just like not supported. And there's actually contrary information. That's like where I would get tripped up Yeah, was recognizing, okay, this answer choice has a vote for it and a vote against it, which makes it wrong. So goodbye, C. Uh, yeah. D, right. you're my, you're my answer. So yeah, no, that's, that's where reading comprehension and, and LR at a high level differ is that the vast majority of questions on RC, the information flows, the support flows from the passage into the answer choices, like the way that MSS questions in LR and main point questions in LR do. I mean, you do sometimes get like weakening or strengthening in RC as well, but those are in the minority. Right. And I, when I took the test, they were definitely, there were the weakening and strengthening, if I recall correctly. And I just found it helpful to remember, this is just the same. Yeah. It's just like LR. You're, you're back in LR now, like in that for that question. Yeah. Drawing those parallels between the sections. Yeah. It just makes it less overwhelming for sure. Yeah. Did you have to struggle with the timing element of RC? Yes. And a big shift for me was doing a lot of untimed sections where I did the same thing that I did on LR, where I refined my process, focused on accuracy, mm -hmm. and then focused on efficiency yeah. in under timed conditions. It's the same, same very simple but effective practice. And yes, that is, that's how I overcame that just by first making sure I was perfect or near perfect on in my process and in answering the questions and then putting myself under time conditions and not trying to do that at the same time. It was too much. Right. So I, I guess overall, in terms of timing strategy, when the clock is ticking for the three sections, you know, I know for LG, you, you already mentioned like kind of taking control over back from the test. Did you implement like skipping strategies? Did you implement like, you know, round one, round two strategies? Yeah. So for reading comprehension, I focused on the spe more specific questions. Same thing as LG. I focused on the specific questions where they're pointing to a line of evidence 
mm-hmm. first. And then I did the more general questions with exception to the main point question. So I did the main point question first because I thought those were most challenging for me. And if I didn't do them first, I'd get like stressed out about it and I'd worry I'd get them wrong. So first I did main point, then the specific questions. The line, line citation questions. Yes, line citation, and then the more general questions like author's opinion and, and inference, more those type of questions following. Taking control that way really helped. Taking control with logic games, that helped. And then for LR, so I had been very, very anxious the first two times I took the test. So I knew I had to learn ways to manage that throughout the sections. And LR, I think, was where I struggled the most. And I found that I had to, with the skipping strategy, I had tried variations of a skipping strategy. And for me, it was kind of like a last resort. Because usually what I needed to do when I was feeling overwhelmed by a question was like, take a breath Mm, and then reattack. And so I wouldn't lose where I was in the question and the reasoning. And so that was specific to me though. And I know everyone's different. And, but for me, that was really what I needed to do more. I needed to take a breath and maybe even like close my eyes for a second and then go back. And then that was really what I needed to do. Whereas a skipping, like the skipping strategy, I think accomplishes that. But for me, I, I don't know. It, it involved like maybe a little too more mental ac- acrobatics than I could really handle. Yeah. It, <laughs> is the cost of the skipping, like it's like kind of grating on you that there's this question here that you, you didn't do. And, and so like yeah. now you're being, now you're not just moving in one direction forward is the territory you have to take, but there's also like sort of enemies behind the lines, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I, I think the overriding principle is just understanding yourself, right? Understanding like right. what works and doesn't work for your own psychology. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's very real. I'm glad I'm glad that you tried at least, but like also identify that this just was not a strategy that that works for you. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And then of course you you found a strategy that does work for you. I wanted to like when I asked you that question, I, I figured like, you know, anytime you are scoring above a 175, there's not much room to skip because Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You just, you can't, 180, like you get to miss zero or one, right? I think it's like typically zero or one question. And then, yeah, you very quickly drop below 175 if you miss like, I don't know, four four or five questions. So you don't even have that much room to maneuver. But I think skipping is like the highest marginal returns happen when your score is lower. And then yes. as your score improves, you get you experience diminishing marginal returns very quickly. Exactly. And I had been empl- I employed it successfully when I was scoring in the 150s and it helped me get to 160. Mm. But I stalled. And at that point, and what I needed to do was everything we just talked about, right. which was focusing on the strategies for each question type and section. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is awesome. Is there anything else you want to share with us about LSAS studies? Yeah, I guess I just wanted to share one last thing, which was that when I scored a 150 on the exam and then a 180, I felt the same amount of anxiety during both exams. (laughs) So I just wanted to, you know, that I'm just one data point, but um, I wanted to put that out there so that people can hear that and know that there's nothing wrong with them, that it's really the way we view it, view what we are experiencing. It really makes the difference. And Harvard 
medical school did this test on students that took the GRE. And they saw that if they prompted the students with an understanding that anxiety is the anxiety you're experiencing, test-taking nerves, all that are there to help you perform at your best. Is just really energy there to help you perform at your best instead of something that's bad. They really outperformed their peers that weren't prompted with that information. So I just wanted to share that last piece so that people don't think, yeah, that experience of taking the exam and being so nervous that's not going to prevent you from getting a great score. <laughs> so you're trying to replicate their experiment by positively framing, <laughs> helping students positively frame the, the anxiety, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I certainly can only see this being helpful. Anxiety is completely normal. Feeling stressed about this super important test is completely normal. And again, going back to what we've been saying this whole time, just kind of positively framing that is something that you are able to do. I, I'm not sure you are able to just completely dispel that anxiety and make it go away, but, no. but you yeah, can choose can. to interpret that anxiety as empowering you, as giving you energy to like do better. Definitely. Great. So last thing I want to talk about just briefly is you're in the application process now, right? Yes. Okay. And you're planning to enroll talking um, October of 2021. So you're planning to enroll in fall of 22. Yes. Okay. Yes. How's that been like <laughs> compared to LSAT studying? It's been challenging in a different way. And I have to say it's way more enjoyable than studying for the LSAT. <laughs> so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I definitely prefer like writing and looking at schools. I mean, this is the fun part. You know, you're, you're thinking about your future now you know, where, where you're going to end up, what life has to hold in this next chapter. So yeah, it's been really, really exciting looking at different schools. And I was really grateful to be connected with your amazing admission staff. So I decided to ask for some help. I think that's been a big part of this yeah. whole journey is asking for the help I need and, and recognizing, you know, I, I have a sort of unique background. I have unique work experiences. I'm an older applicant. Like I want to present that effectively on an application. So, and I realized like, I kind of need help to do that. <laughs> I, I actually definitely need help. So yeah, it's been really fun. Who's your editor? Nora Miller. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I heard her on an episode with Daniel who, yeah. So I heard about Daniel and I heard her and I was like, I actually asked to work with her because I thought great. she seemed really great and it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, you, even without your crazy 180 score, I think you already have a lot of factors that make you stand out as, as an applicant. So I am very hopeful for your law school prospects and I can't wait to find out where you get in. Thank you so much, JY. It was great talking to you today. Take care. Hi, everyone. It's JY again. Thank you for listening. I hope you're able to take some inspiration from me versus LSAT and perhaps some good advice as well that you can implement in your own studies. If you're preparing for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at 7 We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.